Newborn screening research is the future for good health. If we identify disorders before they become symptomatic and, and, and are able to treat them, you impact a life in a way that you can't at any other time in life. If you prevent damage, if you promote health in a newborn, you now have individuals' entire life to reap the benefit of that. Anything other than that is less. I think newborn screening is probably the most important thing we do um, as a profession. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Amy Brower a medical geneticist and the mom of a child with a rare disease. Welcome to the Newborn Screening Spotlight podcast. My co-host, Dr. Ki Chan, and myself are so excited you're here today. And we get to hear today from a rock star in the medical genetics and genomics community, Dr. Jerry Vockley. Dr. Vockley is professor of human genetics, chief of genetic and genomic medicine, and Director of the Center for Rare Disease Therapy at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. Dr. Vockley is an internationally recognized leader in the field of in, the inborn errors of metabolism, and his current research focuses on mitochondrial energy metabolism, novel therapies for disorders of fatty acid oxidation and amino acid metabolism, and the population genetics of the plain communities in the United States. Dr. Vockley has published over 320 peer-reviewed scholarly articles and is currently the principal or co-investigator on multiple NIH grants. Dr. Vockley has an active clinical research program and participates in as well as consults on multiple gene therapy trials. Dr. Vakli has also served on numerous national and international scientific boards, and he's a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Dr. Vakli is currently on the board of the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics, as well as being a founding fellow. He is also the founder and chair of the International Network on fatty acid oxidation research therapy called INFORM and has served as chair of the Pennsylvania State Newborn Screening Advisory Committee, as well as being past president of the International Organizing Committee for the International Congress on Inborn Errors of Metabolism and the Society of Inherited Metabolic Disorders, known as SIMD. Welcome, Dr. Vockley, as you share your career journey and personal stories about the impact of newborn screening research on physicians, families, and advocates. We're so excited to hear from you today. Hello, this is the Newborn Screening Spotlight. This podcast is about the advancement of rare disease research told by health professionals, researchers, parents, and advocates. This podcast is for you to learn how newborn screening research saves the lives of babies every day through the discovery of new technology and treatment. We are your co-hosts. I am Dr. Ki Chan. And I'm Dr. Amy Brower. We're from the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network, also known as the MDSTRN. Our work is supported by one of the institutes at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, called the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, also known as NICHD. Dr. Chan and I are from the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics, also known as ACMG, and ACMG leads the MBSTRN. 
Screening babies saves lives every day and research advances newborn screening by developing new technologies to screen, diagnose, and treat. MBSTRN helps accelerate research by creating tools, resources, and expertise for researchers, doctors, families, patients, and advocates. To learn how you can help advance newborn screening research, advocate for rare disease screening and treatment, and learn about important discovery, become a member of the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network by visiting our website at www.mbstrn.org. Hi, Dr. Walkley. We're so excited to have you join us on the Newborn Screening Spotlight podcast. Dr. Walkley, you're an internationally recognized leader in genetics and genomics, and among your many appointments, you serve on the board for the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics, ACMG, and you advise us on efforts to improve health through the practice of medical genetics and genomics. Um, so thank you for serving on the board. In addition to the ACMG board, you are an integral member in the early days and the current days of MBSTRN. Can you tell our audience how you got involved with ACMG and MBSTRN? Sure, and thanks. Thanks for the for the nice uh, intro. I, uh, you know, MBSTRN. Um, was developed um, at a at a logical time for me to get involved. Uh, I was uh, already on um, the uh, HRSA Secretary's Advisory Committee, the one that that curates the recommended uniform screening panel. The application for the NBSTRN grant uh, came out about that time, and uh, uh, Mike Watson, who was then, uh, I guess he was the executive. Uh, president of of the of the college was his title. Uh, asked if I would be willing to serve on the advisory board for the um, for 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 the for the program, and I said sure. You know, you say yes to lots of things, and sometimes they come true, and sometimes they don't. Well, the college got the grant, and BSTRN was funded, uh, and and so I I uh, I I joined. Uh, the, the the board uh, of directors and it was all it was really interesting in in those early days because nobody knew what they were doing we're just trying to get the program up and running uh, so it was it was a lot of a lot of fun to to uh, uh, see the process see the program uh, mature and eventually uh, moved up uh, uh, as, as we as we all sort of took turns turns to become the uh, the, the the chair of that advisory board uh, I took took uh, took my turn and uh, spent a fair amount of time I'm talking with with folks about uh, the, the 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 program, its directions, and how it how it might uh, might help move newborn screening forward. As technology to screen, diagnose, treat, and manage disease advance and increasingly use sequencing, can you share with our listeners your vision of how sequencing would be used in newborn screening in the future, and what excites you about this potential? And can you share any concerns? Oh boy, there's there's about six questions there. Um, uh, I'll I'll start, and if I forget any of them, give me give me a, give me a nudge, and I'll, I'll go back. Uh, so you know, sequencing I think is um, likely to be the inevitable culmination of of um, newborn screening. But I'm going to change the nomenclature here just a little bit because instead of newborn screening, I think we need to talk about um, lifelong screening. Uh, let me let me tell you what I mean about that. 
if you start with genome sequencing and you sequence everything in a, in a newborn, most parents are not going to want to know everything about that baby's medical health going forward. They're going to want to know what's what's useful, uh, what's necessary to be sure that the baby's happy and healthy um, in those first few months or years of, of, of life. Um, even if some parents want to understand that uh, or, or want every all the information, it's not clear that ethically it's even appropriate because that child has no um, say in, in whether or not uh, later onset diseases um, uh, are, are identified and, and, and especially uh, revealed to the parents. Um, so I think that the, the most logical approach here um, is, uh, is, is, to, is to do um, sequence-based screening um, and, and then only reveal the information that's relevant to a particular stage of life. Um, why is, is, is uh, sequencing um, a, a logical uh, approach in, in newborn screening? Well, most of the other modalities that we have um, can't identify uh, everything. It's, you know, if you're looking at metabolites, you'll identify inborn errors in metabolism. If you look at, at um, um, microarrays, you, you, you uh, identify big pieces of DNA present or missing. If you do, um, if you do antibody studies, you're looking for protein that's present. The DNA uh, gets you everything. And uh, we'll come to problems in a second, but, but if, you, if you say, okay, we can identify anything, what do we wanna know in the newborn period? Well, there's probably a few hundred, uh, people disagree about the, the, the real number, but probably you know, three, four, 500 diseases that you really wanna know about in the newborn period. If a baby has it, it will make a difference in that child's outcome um, or some aspect of that, of that uh, family's uh, uh, um, uh, health and, and, and uh, well-being uh, to, to, to know about that disease sooner rather than later. So go ahead and reveal the, the information on, on those few hundred genes. Um, if it's something that's going to be identified or isn't going to be showing up until later, uh, why bother with it now? Just put it aside and know that you can get them later. Now, what do you do with the rest of that 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 sequencing information? You don't throw it out. It's still there. Um, so at one year of age, at five years of age, at 10 years of age, at 20, 30, 50, uh, 80, uh, you can go back and you can reanalyze that data for age-appropriate um, genetic risks. And so I refer to this as screening for life. Um, one-year-old babies all get a hematocrit at birth, uh, at, at, uh, at one year of age, I'm sorry. Um, and, and, and so that's screening. Uh, why not go ahead um, and, and look at the, what, what the, the, the genomic uh, uh, sequencing that was done at birth and say, what do I have to worry about for the next couple, three years of life or for one to five years of age? Then you look again at five and you look again at 10. Um, that makes more sense to me than trying to uh, identify and deal with everything um, at, at, at birth. And I think it also uh, gets around the ethical questions of, of what you release uh, uh, to, to um, families about uh, children uh, that they might not have an opportunity to um, uh, participate in decision-making uh, uh, when, when, they're, when they're younger. Now, that is uh, a, a sort of um, ideal. Uh, what are the problems with, with implementing something like that? Well, first of all, our, our 
our analytical capabilities are uh, for, for genome sequencing aren't nearly so robust as with some of those other technologies that I that I um, that I mentioned. Um, for, for example, in a comparison, a uh, group out of UCSF uh, looked to see uh, using standard newborn screening technology for inborn errors of metabolism, tandem mass spec, um, and then comparing that with genome sequencing. Which one was more sensitive? How often did you find uh, identify an inborn error metabolism? And the metabolite screening one hands down. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the genome sequencing missed about 20% of what was picked up on metabolite analysis. So the technology is not quite there yet. Um, and and uh, 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 what's it going to take to get there? Well, it's just more sequences. Uh, we, we need sequences uh, across the, uh, the, 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 the ethnic spectrum uh, uh, of of the makeup of our country, if if we don't have that, we don't have uh, the 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 accurate uh, uh, interpretation uh, that we need. But once you get to that point, you know you it, it's 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 only a matter of time. It's a few years, um, uh, maybe it's ten years. I don't know. But we'll, we will get to that point, and we'll be able to use the sequencing um, for for in that uh, in that uh, in that setting. Um, if if then a, a, a disease um, is identified or a new treatment is identified uh, at any time uh, in the age spectrum, and you say it makes sense to put a mask this at five years, at 10 years, you can just go ahead and do it. Um, gene therapy for, for, for a new gene comes along, fine. You now add that to that list of 500, if you will, in the, in the, in the newborn. Who's gonna do this analysis? Well, ideally, this is a super easy to use software interface at the, at the desk uh, of, the, of the pediatrician or the PCP, um, who's simply gonna say, I'm seeing uh, Johnny Smith, uh, age five, and, and here's, the, here's the sequencing record number, um, and, and uh, tell me what I need to know for the next five years, and up it pops. You don't have to have um, a, a formal um, uh, uh, reanalysis of the of the DNA. Uh, it, it just you know, the, the 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 you can you can get it from the from your from the software on your on the computer in front of the, the physician. So that's kind of the the the, the long and short about about uh, uh, how we could utilize uh, a genome screen, uh, sequencing in, in newborn screening. And I actually missed it from my comments. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. I, I think that it's the way of the future. I think we have uh, a, a, a tremendous uh, a, a, a opportunity here to improve the health of of. Uh, Babies first, everybody else after that, uh, and uh, and and we should be we should be embracing it. Thank you, Dr. Buckley. Um, can you talk a little bit more? I think you um, sort of said lifetime screening, um, or maybe it's lifetime interpretation of a, a genome taken from a newborn sample. So, is the timing of the which disease to analyze for? based on when you can intervene or based on when symptoms sort of are observable or do they overlap? 
or does I, it I, depend? Yeah, I think it overlaps. I, I you know, uh, clearly you want to be able to um, intervene um, when it is most effective. So if in fact you need to do that before symptoms start, well, you would move the, 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 the screen. And I like your, I like your language. It's, it's lifelong interpretation, not lifelong screening. Um, maybe I'll use that from now on. I'll, I'll give you credit for it. Um, the, uh, so, so, you know, if you, if you, if you want to, if you want to, um, uh, identify something uh, where where treatment begins prior to symptoms, and you just move it in front of the symptoms. Uh, if if it's a disease where where um, you it doesn't matter whether you start it uh, when when symptoms uh, uh, before symptoms start or afterwards. You could argue that it would make sense to just wait until something shows up, and then uh, you plug in that symptom, and 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 up pops the uh, or, or you just look at the at the sequencing data, and up pops the the, the disease. So it it will it will absolutely take a lot of curating at the at the individual gene and individual disease level to make that determination. Um, but but uh, you know I think that's what we as geneticists do all the time anyway in our everyday practice. And so it's uh, it's not a it's not a big uh, it's not a big extension from from uh, from that. That's great. Um, and I think one of the things you described was a pediatrician sort of doing this age-based um, reinterpretation or, you know, sort of triggered for something. Do you think this is a new area where ACMG and AAP can work together or where geneticists are paired up with pediatricians? Or can you share a little bit of vision on how, how do we implement this and how do geneticists work hand-in-hand with pediatricians? Yeah, I, I I think that's a, 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 a an excellent example. You know, you you say uh, if the pediatrician is gonna is gonna be doing that um, uh, reinterpretation, then then they they need a direct line to a geneticist, and and uh, uh, as 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 this exciting uh, technology becomes. Um, more and more uh, prevalent, I, I hope will also attract more and more uh, excited medical students to our our profession, and so we can we can handle that that kind of uh, uh, load. You know, right now there are more PCPs out there there are than, than there are geneticists, but uh, uh, we 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 will have uh, MD geneticists to have a role in this. I think genetic counselors uh, could could have a role in this, and obviously the laboratory geneticists will 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 have a big role in uh, in in. How this gets implemented. It's so exciting to think about that future. And um, in your spare time, um, in addition to seeing patients, you've somehow managed to publish over 320 peer-reviewed scholarly articles, as well as leading many efforts funded by the National Institutes of Health or NIH and many others. Can you describe the key findings from one of your most recent publications titled Rapid whole genome sequencing and a targeted neonatal gene panel in infants with a suspected genetic disorder. Uh, happy to do it. First of all, though, let me recognize that this was a, a, a team sport. We had a, 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 a multi-center national study 
that was uh, put together to to uh, uh, to 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 look at this uh, issue, and and and, and Jill Marin uh, for uh, was at Tufts, and then and then uh, uh, moved to Brown when we uh, partway through the study, and Jonathan Davis, uh, who uh, 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 played a, a huge role in in implementing the study at, at Tufts. Um, and and then uh, I won't list everybody else who was involved, but it was uh, there were a, a lot of folks. Um, but but uh, the, the 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 goal the goal of the study was to just look at a couple of emerging technologies to see um, how they how they performed uh, in in the uh, uh, in, in the setting. Now this was not um, newborn screening, so but but these were uh, critically ill children in the in the NICU, uh, uh, and and um, uh, we 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 compared two modalities: whole genome sequencing, rapid turnaround, uh, done by Stephen Kingsmore um, at uh, Rady, uh, and, uh, and and a, and a gene panel of uh, seventeen hundred and twenty-two genes that were curated uh, to, I would say, loosely have some impact in in the the first couple years of life. There were some things in there that probably uh, were, were were a little iffy, but nonetheless, it was a it was a defined panel, um, and this was done. By Quest Athena, and and uh, and and so uh, we we just did uh, both both modalities. Uh, the the um, the the referrals came uh, from babies in the NICU from a geneticist who was involved uh, uh, in the in the in the study, and uh, and 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 we we ended up um, uh, uh, testing about four hundred babies uh, in that uh, in that uh, study. And uh, as as it as it turned out, we got a, a diagnosis in uh, 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 just over fifty percent of them. I think that's amazing. Um, it, it, it realize how hard it is to make a diagnosis in in this setting in in uh, uh, in in the in the NICU. And and this one test got half 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 the babies had a diagnosis. Um, the there there were. Um, uh, and 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 if you if you uh, looked at the at the um, so that was that was uh, uh, 50 50 percent with with uh, uh, genomic testing of some sort. Now there were um, a, a relatively small number, a few percent of uh, of uh, um, uh, 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 findings that were picked up on um, the the panel that weren't identified by uh, the genome sequencing, um, but the but the genome sequencing and uh, uh, ended up being um, um, uh, more uh, more much more sensitive to for for uh, identifying uh, things. Uh, there there were I think nineteen variants that were missed on on genomic sequencing, uh, but one hundred and sixty four that were identified on genomic sequencing. Uh, that that weren't picked up by the panel test. So you know it's, it's pretty clear to me that genome sequencing is going to be uh, the way to go. And plus, you don't just need to keep revalidating re re the panel every time something uh, comes out of there. Uh, the amazing part of that um, for the for the samples uh, outside the diagnostic rate, the samples that were run through genomic sequencing just on on a on a a routine uh, uh, work schedule. Uh, turnaround time six days to the diagnosis. The panel was a little quicker on routine four days, uh, but if we alerted the, the genome sequencing lab uh, that it was an urgent sample, uh, that that uh, time went down to three days. That counts from the time uh, the 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 
the, the, the sample hit the hit the laboratory. So you know this was uh, a, a really a really fast uh, uh, a fast turnaround time, uh, and and it and it and it and it made a huge difference because uh, well I I oh I think making a diagnosis always makes a difference uh, to, to a family. So I, I don't really like to, to say how, what percentage of those diagnoses made a difference, but if you look at how many of those changed metabolic man or um, uh, medical management, about 20% of, of the diagnoses changed medical management. Um, so so uh, we, we, we got half a diagnosis in half those babies and 20% of the time it made a, a difference in medical management. Um, so, you know, this is, this is, it, 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 it ought to be standard of care in, in, in NICU medicine. I argue that it ought to be standard of care in, in, uh, PICU medicine and in, and medical intensive care medicine. I, you know, it's just, it, it just is, uh, 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 uh the, the way to go. I, I recently had the opportunity to go, uh, to one of our adult, uh, um, uh, medical intensive care units where, where they had some patients they were having trouble with three very, very complicated patients. I said, all I'm doing is genome sequencing. And in those three patients, I made seven diagnoses, which in combination explained everybody's clinical symptoms. Yet none of them had a diagnosis. They had all had multiple invasive uh, 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 procedures and probably millions of dollars in, in hospital charges. Uh, I always I always tell um, uh, insurers when I'm trying to get authorization for this kind of testing. You know, what about better care, uh, better uh, care at lower cost? Don't you understand? It's just the way to go. I think something you said, Dr. Buckley. Really, I've been hearing it a lot lately um, as the MBS Caring gets more involved in, with parents and families and advocacy groups. Is to have a diagnosis is everything. Absolutely. And so can you tell us from your experience a little bit about that? I mean, as you know, I'm a parent of a son with severe combined immune deficiency. And for me, it was like, okay, what's the gene? But I'm a geneticist. But can you tell us from what does a diagnosis mean to a family? Um, and how important is it in as genetic in the world of genetics? Are we still finding new diseases? Are we going to have the Bockley syndrome someday, or maybe we already have it. Um, but are we, are we still finding new diseases? I refuse to let them name diseases after me. I don't want to be, I don't want to be remembered for, for, for identifying the disease. I want to be remembered for curing it. Um, so, uh, but, but, um, I, I, Amy, I, I have to turn the question around the other way. I, it's like, how, how can you, how can you think that, that, um, having a diagnosis won't make a difference for for a family if if it's if it's a diagnosis that leads to a a change in in therapy that's great you know you've done you've done a, a world of good um but 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 for a family who ha who has a child who's ill and you have no idea what's going on. Um, even even if the answer that comes out is one that I'm I'm sorry, there's nothing else that we can do. It makes a difference because it tells you. Um, it allows you to make a decision as 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 to how much more um, uh, uh, intervention you 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 can and 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 should do for that child. You know, if it, whether it's a whether it's a question of of redirecting care um, or 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 uh, a, a child that's that's not that's not critically ill, um, but but now you can stop looking and just take them home and 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 love them. I mean, uh, uh, that's that's uh, I I I think I think a 
diagnosis uh, in in the in in the long run um, is 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 always a gift, even even if uh, in the in the short term it's a devastating one. Thank you for clarifying. And I guess you've just described you know the real experiences of families with the diagnostic odyssey, and hopefully with this mm-hmm. screening, it'll eliminate some of that um, odyssey for families. Yeah, I, I think that's the. That, that's that's the whole goal here. It's to it's it's to say you know can we 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 have a technology um, that can that can uh, 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 keep you from from looking year after year after year for an answer um, and 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 just tell you what's wrong uh, and and uh, I I think that's uh, uh, that's that's our that's our job as physicians as 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 care providers. Thank you so much, Doctor Vothley. In addition to being a physician, you are the Cleveland Family Endowed Pediatric Research School of Medicine Professor of Human Genetics and the Director of the Center for Rare Disease Therapy at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. In your article titled, Scaling Genetic Resources, New Paradigm for Diagnosis and Treatment of Rare Genetic Disease, you mentioned that the movement from the basic science laboratory to clinical trial is still hampered by a regulatory system rooted in traditional trial designs and requires a fresh assessment of safe ways to obtain approval of new drugs. You propose the development and scaling of nucleic acid-based therapy. Can you share this possibility with our listeners? And what challenges needs to be overcome to deliver them safely with appropriate evaluation and long-term follow-up? It's a, that's a, a, a another a very complicated question with a with a with a lot of layers to it. Um, I, I think at its simplest, uh, what you can what you can do is think of of um, um, what's what's necessary to move something from uh, a handful of patients, maybe even a hand in 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 a handful of of uh, uh, centers across around the country um and now and now bring that uh, uh to to be available um to uh anyone with that disease uh anywhere at 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 any time um and 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 so what it what it what it means is that is that uh you 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 really need um uh, a, a, a system that that is 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 going to be um, independent of the resources of of where that patient is being seen um, initially. Uh, if, if you have a disease X and there's a gene therapy, um, the the presumably that that diagnosis was made by a geneticist. But even if it wasn't, that individual could be referred to a geneticist. Um, that that geneticist will 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 know immediately by going to a public database um, uh, what the status of therapy is for that for that disease. Um, and and uh, not every center, not every geneticist is going to want to put out the kind of resources that are going to be necessary to to um, uh, deliver gene therapy appropriately, uh, and 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 so each each center will will be able to essentially stratify itself uh, as to where they want to be in the process. So you may be a diagnostic center and a follow up center, uh, and when you find that when you make a diagnosis, you send that individual off to um, a, a, a treating center, and the treating center has to have the ability uh, to to be able to deliver 
the gene therapy and whatever that means, you know, sometimes it's a bone marrow transplant. Sometimes it's a direct, uh, uh, it's an IV infusion. Sometimes it's a direct brain injection. Uh, so the, so the, so the treating center, um, has, has more sophisticated, ca uh, capabilities. Uh, but because they're going to be getting patients from, from other, other places, um, for, for them, the ability to send those patients back to their, to their referral center, uh, for, for longer term follow up, maybe with some return visits, um, is, is the, is the way to, um, uh, uh, be able to uh, uh, provide that service to as many uh, patients as is uh, as necessary. There's also the issue of how how going to um, pay for uh, and 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 deliver these services. You know, these well, the gene therapies uh, 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 that that have been approved are 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 running one or two million dollars a treatment. Um, as we get more and more of them, it is going to stress our 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 um, uh, uh, insurance system. There's there's just no no way um, that our that our individual insurers are going to be able to keep up with this demand. So I think it means that there's got to be some sort of central involvement, uh, uh, a single single payer, even if it's just for this this uh, indication. Um, but it also means that there's got to be a different way of, of, of reimbursing centers for delivering that. If you think about um, uh, uh, gene therapy as being a, an IV infusion, which in some cases it is, um, if, a, if a child comes to my center for an IV infusion, they get into an infusion chair, a nurse starts an IV, they get their, they, they get or access a support, they get their infusion, maybe they're in the chair for an hour, uh, they, they, they walk out, maybe there's some labs. The whole, the whole encounter um, is is, uh, is 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 maybe a few hundred to a few thousand dollars. Uh, that's not trivial, but we just delivered a million dollar drug. Um, where where is the where is the um, incentive for uh, uh, a a treatment center uh, to put together the resources that are necessary to um, deliver that drug? So I I. I think of gene therapy not as a treatment, uh, but as a process. It's sort of like an organ transplant. You need to evaluate the, the, the patient up front to make sure that they're getting, that it's the right disease, getting the right gene, and sometimes even to have the right mutation, not just the right gene, um, that, 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 that uh, you have the resources to deliver the, um, the, the, uh, the, the therapy, uh, that you know how to treat the known uh, complications of gene therapy, uh, both initially and 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 uh, uh, sort of the immediate uh, short term, uh, and then you also are able to follow that individual for the long term complications and outcome. Because if we're going to spend a million dollars on a treatment, we want to know that it's working. Um, so. How's the institution going to pay for all of that? You know, they're not going to pay for it by a thousand dollar reimbursement. So I've I've been advocating uh, for a, um, uh, an, an, an approach that says the uh, the 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 the, the uh, treating center um, should should get uh, uh, some some percentage of what that drug costs to deliver it. I've been making up a number that says 10%. So if a drug costs a million dollars, the reimbursement to the center for that whole process that I just described is $100,000. Now, is that 
Is that a lot? Is that a little? Think about a liver transplant. A liver transplant um, in, a, in, in, in the United States today at a, in a pediatric patient cost about a million dollars. Um, we're going to replace many of those liver transplants uh, uh, for, with, 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 uh, with, with gene therapy. The gene therapy, the drug costs a million dollars, but the institution that's getting a million dollars for that gene therapy, I mean, for that, uh, 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 that, that liver transplant is getting nothing for the gene therapy unless we get um, some, some, uh, some, some sort of reimbursement. By the way, the, 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 the um, operating uh, margin on that, the, uh, uh, that transplant is, is probably about uh, $75,000 to $100,000. So that's why I picked that 10% number. So, so, so the, so the, 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 the uh, operating margin for the, for the hospital to do those two procedures is exactly the same. Now, of course, you need a whole lot of less infrastructure to deliver a gene therapy than uh, a liver transplant. So there's a savings to the system um, uh, from, from that standpoint. Thank you, Dr. Vockley. It's so interesting to hear your vision, not only how to care for families and um, patients living with genetic disease, but also how to change the institutions um, that can potentially support this vision of, you know, screening for everyone and age-based interventions. So it's really inspiring. So with that said, um, there must be many stories throughout your career that have sort of kept you going, keep you calling that insurance company, following up um, to make sure a family got a diagnosis. Can you share any of those stories with our audience? Uh, oh, I, 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 I'd love, I'd love to share them all, but we'd be here all night, which would be kind of fun, actually. But, but, uh, yeah, I, I can, I can, I can tell you one that that uh, uh, will, 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 will always be with me, in part because it, it, uh, as, as a part of my, 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 uh, the, 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 the diseases that I deal with on a regular basis, uh, plus the work that I do in, in, in research. Um, uh, you may have heard of a, a drug recently approved, triheptanone or Dojovi. Uh, it's a, it's a, 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 a uh, the first drug approved for treatment of long chain, uh, fatty acid oxidation disorders. And, and, um, I, I, um, uh, uh, was uh, involved in 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 developing that drug and and uh, uh, had the pleasure of working with a pharmaceutical company, Ultragenics, uh, in in running the clinical trial to get ultimate FDA approval. Um, uh, but there was a there was a time there when when I was the only place in the country where you could get it because I was the only one that had it, um, and 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 so people were coming to me from all over the country to to participate in a clinical trial. I had this seven-year-old uh, 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 patient with uh, LCHAD deficiency, a long-chain fatty acid oxidation disorder, um, uh, who, who was identified by newborn screening, so a success of, of the system. Um, and for the first seven years of his life, he, he had no problems. He was taken care of. Uh, he, he, he didn't have any of the, the serious complications of the, of the disorder. But about age seven, a time when a lot of patients start having uh, issues with with uh, one of the muscle symptoms, rhabdomyolysis or muscle breakdown, um, he indeed started having rhabdomyolysis. And, and after uh, about a half a dozen uh, or so hospitalizations over the next six months, uh, his mom said, well, isn't there anything else I can do? His treating physician referred him to me for this clinical trial. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and took another six months to make all the arrangements, but he came out to Pittsburgh, um, and, and, uh, and we, we started enrolling him in the clinical trial. Well, one of the complications of 
fat, long chain fatty acid oxidation disorders is a cardiomyopathy. So one of the tests that we do uh, is a is a, an echocardiogram. Well, this young man had had a normal echocardiogram six months earlier, and he looked pretty. We didn't look like he had any problems, so uh, we we had no uh, uh, idea that there was uh, anything wrong. Uh, but he got his echo. We got a report back. That uh, let's said uh, his ejection fraction was forty uh, percent. Give you a, an idea of what's that? That's about a that's that's reduced by about a third from normal. Uh, it's not life threatening, but it requires therapy. So I said, well, I'm not I'm not comfortable starting this drug as an outpatient. We're going to bring you into the hospital. We're going to watch carefully, and we're going to we're going to um, see if we need to do anything else besides start the triheptanoin. Um, so that was a Thursday. We brought him into the hospital Friday morning. We were getting everything ready for for the for the for the trial, which was going to start on Saturday morning. Saturday morning, I was on my way down to the hospital to uh, 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 to see the family, and I got the the a call from from our our, our clinical uh, on call doc who said, uh, you know, your patient doesn't look very good. Uh, I, I think I'm going to send him to the ICU. Oh, uh, geez. Okay. You looked okay yesterday. Uh, I got to the ICU. Um, well, and, and she said that the, the echo that we got on the, uh, on the floor had a 25% ejection fraction. Now that's full, full, full fledged, uh, uh, cardiac failure. You can't live with that for, for any extended period of time. Uh, so, so she sent it down to the ICU, but I was about 10 minutes from the hospital. By the time I got to the hospital and looked up where he was, where his room was, he was indeed already in the in the intensive care unit. I, I walked up to the floor, um, and and not only was he in, in the intensive care unit, but he had coded. Um, he was he was in full fledged cardiorespiratory arrest, and there was this big team around him uh, trying to trying to resuscitate him. Um, they they were having no luck, so they very quickly got him onto uh, uh, ECMO, extracorporeal. Um, uh, uh, a heart lung machine to replace the blood uh, blood circulation, um, and so and so he was alive, but he was dependent on that machine to survive. Family, of course, is in shock. They went from having a, what looked like a healthy child to someone who uh, actually you know tried to die, actually did die, uh, and unfortunately uh, was brought back. Um, however. After two weeks on this machine in the ICU, he wasn't getting any better, and the and the cardiologists were now saying, "Well, we're not sure we can we can support him very much longer uh, with 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 this. We don't we don't know what to do." So I well, can we try my drug? Um, and they said, "Well, you know, it's a it's a it's a, an enteral drug. We have to give it by the GI tract, and we don't like to do that uh, because it increases the risk of kids on on ECMO." I said, "You know, you're talking about." redirecting support. He's going to die anyway. Let's give it a shot. So they agreed. Um, and, and he went from having no cardiac function uh, in about three days, his heart started working. Uh, and in five days, he was off the, 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 the machine. Uh, and by three weeks, he was discharged. Doesn't get any more heady than that, and I and I I, I uh, you know I I, I I I take I take only credit for being a persistent in trying to give him the drug. Uh, everybody else around me kept him kept him alive and 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 helped him uh, help it helped him uh, make it uh, that that uh, that that far. But his was one of the families who who came to the FDA as we were going for for approval and and uh, and gave testimony to the FDA about about. The difference that this drug made in their lives. Wow, what a story that gave us chills, right, Key? Um, what an amazing experience. And now that drug's available um, across the board for all kids that need it. How wonderful. Mm -hmm.
Dr. Buckley, I agree with Dr. Brower that that story is just just shows how at any moment, like any physician who's a researcher can see that there's opportunities and really push forward with families can really make a difference. And seeing the impact that it's making to so many families now, I mean, it just must make you have such a big smile in your heart. I mean, I'm just hearing that story just gave me chills, um, exactly what Dr. Brown was saying. And thank you for sharing that story. And many of our listeners who are listening can see that you're very passionate um, in, in your clinics with your patients. And is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? The message um, that, I, that I would like to get out there um, is, is sort of twofold to, to parents. Um, it's it's uh, uh, don't don't give up. If 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 you if you think you have something uh, or your child has something that that that, uh, that 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 needs to be treated, needs to be diagnosed, and it hasn't been, um, keep pushing. Be, and 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 uh, you know di- uh, our geneticists often end up being the diagnosticians of last resort. Uh, so, so, uh, you might, you might, you might make it to us. And, and if you do, I hope we can, we can help you. Um, but, but to, um, uh, to the next generation of, of, uh, uh, care providers, uh, I, uh, medical students, residents trying to figure out what they're going to do with their life. Uh, I, I will, uh, I will say to you, um, that you can't pick a more exciting discipline, um, than, than, than medical genetics. Our standard test is whole genome sequencing. I, 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 you can't get any more technically sophisticated than that. Um, and it gives us the ability uh, to increasingly not just diagnose, um, but, but, but treat um, so, that, so that old um, image of, of, the, of the, the, the geneticist walking in the room and making a diagnosis on the basis of, of, of physical features or, or a couple of peaks on a, on a, on a chromatogram um, is, 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 uh, is, is, is rapidly being um, replaced um, by the by the individual who is the master of not just genomics but all of the omics, multiomics as we're starting to call it, uh, and you and you use the most sophisticated uh, diagnostic technology in medicine today to help you to a diagnosis and then be able to treat. Uh, you know, we all go into medicine to be able to treat, right? I mean, that was you don't you don't start you don't start medical school by saying I'm going to make diagnoses and then never see that patient again. We want to treat. That's why metabolism has been so so rewarding over the years, um, and now we're going to be able to make that available increasingly uh, to anyone with a with a genetic disease because of um, gene therapy and new technologies. So it's an exciting time, uh, and and I and I, I I hope that patients will benefit benefit from it. I know they will, uh, and I and I hope that our 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 our, our any medical students residents are out there uh, looking for for. Um, the most exciting opportunity in medicine today, uh, we'll, we'll look into training in genetics. It's so exciting. It reminds me that ACMG has some student groups um, and some opportunities for those medical students and residents as they're sort of thinking about where to spend their time. But I agree with you. Um, and sort of thinking about, you know, as you think about sort of growing the workforce in medical genetics and genomics, we really want to take a minute and thank you for all of your efforts, you know, over 15 years ago and really conceptualizing the MBSTRN and helping us to establish a network of stakeholders. And we're really lucky that, you know, newborn screening is a public health program or begins in public health, 
but it really impacts, uh, has impacts across the lifespan and impacts what we think about the family's health. Um, we're starting to think about also how it impacts the community and what a community can do to support. And when you were answering the last question and sharing your thoughts and you sort of um, talked about you know, how genetics and genomics has an impact across the diagnosis um, for screening, diagnosis, and designing a treatment, and it could potentially help with management across a lifespan if there's a comorbidity or something that we're learning to think about as people age with these different diseases. So we've had a lot of at, historically newborn screening has been advanced by advocates, both health care professionals, researchers, state newborn screening programs, families, and advocates. Do you have any advice, Dr. Vockley, for this community and how they can help to realize some of the future of newborn screening and especially capitalize on all the efforts ACMGs put in over the last 15 years of establishing the MBS CRN? Boy, I, I think the best advice I can give is stay, in, stay engaged, uh, be, be active, um, don't take no for an answer uh, and, uh, and, and push the field forward. Dr. Blackley, you're involved in training the new generation of medical geneticists what do you tell them about newborn screening research? I do better than tell them. I show them. I bring a I bring a patient in, um, and I and I and I, I I tell them about the the disease and and its outcome before newborn screening in general pretty horrendous, uh, and then and then show them a nice happy healthy uh, child who stands up in front of them and gives them and gives them a a, a talk about about her formula. Um, it's, it's, uh, uh, I, 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 I get the best ratings of any lecture I give when I do that. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, you don't, you don't know what you how, how much that program means, uh, and until you see the, the now healthy child in front of you, uh, and, and recognize best not have been that healthy and at worst might not have survived, uh, without, uh, without newborn screening. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so that never, that never fails to, uh, impress them. And I, I think that's a, that's, that's better than anything I can say, uh, to them about newborn screening. That's, that's amazing. I love that you said, I don't talk about it. I show them. <laughs> so that's a, so great. Um, any, um, resident or medical student that gets the opportunity to train under you is really lucky. Um, and hopefully they'll become newborn screening advocates. So across the years um, in recording these podcasts, we always end every podcast with a signature question. And that question is, what does newborn screening research mean to you? Newborn screening research is the future for good health. If we identify disorders before they become symptomatic and, and, and are able to treat them, you impact a life in a way that you can't at any other time in life. If you prevent damage, if you promote health in a newborn, you now have individuals' entire life to reap the benefit of that. Anything other than that is less. I think newborn screening is probably the most important thing we do um, as a profession. Thank you for listening to this episode of Newborn Screening Spotlight. If you like our podcast, please subscribe and share an episode with your colleagues, friends, and family. Get involved. Stay informed. Help us advance discoveries. Together, Together 
Let's increase the impact of newborn screening research by listening to your stories.